This morning I'd like to speak for a uh, second time on the teaching of the two arrows. Uh, Last week I gave an overview of this very powerful and fundamental teaching and particularly applied it to individual practice. And what I want to do this morning is to review some of what we looked at last time, review the teaching, talk about some of the dimensions of the teaching and ways of practicing it. And then, as I mentioned last time, I wanted to extend it to further dimensions beyond individual practice. And last time I talked about extending it to be, as it were, a guide for how we are in relationships and how we are in the larger social world. And today I I reflected in my preparation and I thought that uh, to deal with all of that would be a little too much. So I'm going to restrict it today to the review of the core teaching and how to practice it and then extend it to looking at the how we work with this practice in the social world with particular uh, uh, application to the uh, attempts at social change connected with the traditions of nonviolence, which I think are a very clear expression of this core teaching in the, uh, in, the, in the dimension of society and social change, social service. So that's what I want to explore today. So um, review of the teaching. This is this very basic uh, teaching that I think is a very succinct way to get to the core message of the Buddha. It's this very, very brief teaching, which in the text only covers about two pages. And I think it gets at what our core practice is in a way which is clearer and more succinct, I think, than any other teaching, including the Four Noble Truths. I'll I'll talk about that in a a, a little while. So again, I'll read from the teaching and give a little bit of gloss on it and then talk about how we practice it and some of the subtleties of the teaching in terms of first of individual practice. So here's the text from 2,600 years ago. And I'll just read selectively, not the whole text. The Buddha said, when touched with a feeling of pain, the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person, in other words, average Joe, (laughs) sorrows, grieves, and laments, beats his breast, becomes distraught. So that person feels two pains, physical and mental, just as if they were to shoot a man with an arrow and right afterwards were to shoot that person with another one so that one would feel the pain of two arrows in the same way when touched with a feeling of pain, the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person sorrows, grieves, and laments, beats his breast, becomes distraught. So that one feels two pains, physical and mental. And again, the teaching is in response to the question that the Buddha asked. Everyone experiences the unpleasant and experiences particularly Uh, what's physically painful at times, how does a a practitioner differ from a non-practitioner? And in this teaching, it's understood, especially in terms of physical pain. And I generalize the teaching to deal with any kind of difficult or unpleasant experience, whether that is uh, mental, emotional, interpersonal, related to fairness or injustice, that what the the Buddha is saying is that there's a tendency when there is the presence of what is difficult, painful, hard, and so forth, there's a tendency to be reactive. There's a tendency to not want 
the unpleasant experience to be there. And that when we are not mindful and when we are acting more automatically, out of our ignorance, I think would be said, we tend to react in a variety of ways. Physically, we tend to tighten often around the physical pain. And I I mentioned last time that probably the first application of mindfulness historically in the West was in the field of chronic pain where people were instructed on how to essentially not shoot the second arrow and tense around the pain. Doctors saying as much as 80% of what some people with chronic pain experience as pain is the reaction, not the original stimulus. And so we know how that manifests also in terms of difficult experiences. I have something difficult happen to me and that, that the Buddha says is like the first arrow and then because of the presence of the first arrow, I shoot a second arrow. And I, I, I'm generalizing from the teaching and saying, I shoot that second arrow either at myself or at others or both. <laughs> and I will, because of a difficult, let's say, emotional experience, I have a difficult, uh, I don't know, I get a difficult work evaluation in my workplace. I'm kind of grumpy and I take it out on my partner, I take it out on whoever would be around me, I take it out on myself, I blame myself, I judge myself, it hooks in with, you know, decades of being hard on myself. You know, that would be shooting the second arrow. And so again, we could, uh, it could manifest in all sorts of ways. Someone says something to me, I automatically react right back if I don't like what's being said. Those would all be examples of there being a first arrow, which is unpleasant, and then a reaction, which is the second arrow. And we could sometimes uh, differentiate the first arrow and call that pain and call the second arrow suffering. And I, I gave the story last time of a woman who was in hospice who had at the foot of her bed the sign Pain is a given, suffering is optional. And she was using that distinction between the first arrow and the second arrow. So the practitioner learns not to shoot the second arrow. The uh, teacher Shinzen Young, some of you may know, has a very succinct way of of, uh, speaking about this in almost giving a scientific formula. Because he, he was trained as a scientist, he says that uh, pain times resistance equals suffering. (laughs) P times R equals S. (laughs) It's the same thing. It's the teaching of the second arrow. Pain plus the second arrow becomes suffering. Again, I like to use more the language of calling it uh, reactivity which can lead to quite a bit of further unpleasant experiences. And so that can also be the case, of course, in the social realm. We have, you know, my group has a difficult experience, my country has pain, and I want to bring pain to those who I think cause my pain. A lot of violence takes that form. A lot of violence takes the form of, I have received pain, I will pass on the pain to others. There was a, again, uh, there was a study done by the American Psychological Association. They found that the single greatest cause, or not the single greatest correlation with youth violence was that those young people had had violence done to them. In other words, they're caught up in, you know, you know, the pain has its reverberation in their systems and they, you know, not so consciously, but want to pass it on to others. And that, that describes a lot of conflicts. It describes a lot of relationships between societies, conflicts, even wars, are matters of shooting, often shooting second arrows repeatedly. And the second arrow 
is code for the third through the one millionth arrow being shot, <laughs> right? Okay, and so what one learns to do is to not shoot the second arrow in the same way. And so here's from the text what the uh, wise practitioner does. Now the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones, when touched with a feeling of pain, does not sorrow, grieve, or lament, does not beat one's breast or become distraught. So one feels one pain, physical, but not the second arrow, the mental one. Just as if they were to shoot a person with an arrow and right afterwards did not shoot that person with another one so that one would feel the pain of only one arrow. In the same way, when touched with a feeling of pain, the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones does not sorrow, grieve, or lament, does not beat the breast or become distraught. One feels one pain, physical, but not mental. Again, in the text, it's the example more of receiving a physical pain and then having the, we would say, mental, emotional reaction. But I'm generalizing it to mean any kind of pain as the first arrow, and then the reaction, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, in terms of interpersonal, social, I'm calling that the second arrow. And so, very fundamental teaching. I've, uh, I believe that this gets completely at the heart of the core teaching of the Buddha. That this is really it. It's really a teaching with associated practices of learning to be able to respond rather than react increasingly in every situation. It's a tall order, right? That is a very uh, simple, ordinary English way of talking about this core teaching. I think it's also the same teaching that we actually find in the Four Noble Truths, which is you know, often taken as the core teaching. I think for many people, the Four Noble Truths, I believe, are not quite as clear as the two arrows about this teaching, that there are places where maybe this was your experience, where it can be a little bit confusing. You know, so for example, I won't go into this in so much depth, but the first noble truth is taken as the truth of dukkha, usually translated as suffering. But unless you make a very clear distinction between pain and suffering, it can be confusing because suffering in English, is often synonymous with pain, right? And so there can be that confusion. And, and even in other texts, often it's said that dukkha uh, is, and it talks about illness, getting older, dying, and so forth. And these, strictly speaking, are the first arrow. But I would say, I like to translate dukkha as reactivity, because it's the second arrow that's the problem. The first arrow comes with life. You know, a certain amount of pain comes with life. So it can be confusing. And then the second arrow, or the second noble truth, is the, that the cause of dukkha, and this I think would be the cause of shooting the second arrow, is grasping. And again, this can be confusing because, strictly speaking, reactivity has two forms. Grasping but also pushing away. The teaching of the two arrows, it's about pushing away, shooting the arrow, getting shot by the arrow. So there can be, there can be confusion there because I think what's really being talked about is exactly the teaching of the two arrows. And then the third noble truth says is the truth of the end of dukkha. But the end of dukkha doesn't make sense if, it's the, if we're speaking about the end of pain because... That continues as long as we're human at times. It does make sense to speak about the end of shooting the second arrow, to move in that direction, to practice in that way. So, and then the fourth noble truth are the various practices and teachings which help us, I would say, not to shoot the second arrow. So I find in some ways the second arrow is, gets at this core teaching more directly. And for a lot of people, it's actually, the Four Noble Truths is great, can be inspiring, can be, a lot of lights go on. A lot of people, they hear the second uh, teaching of the two arrows and it's, ah, 
It was that way for me when I heard that. Okay, this is very clear, very clear. And uh, very simple conceptually and challenging practically. (laughs) The sign of a good teaching. (laughs) Simple conceptually, hard in practice. (laughs) Okay, and so uh, last time I gave a number of different ways of practicing. I'll just go over those briefly because you'll we'll find that these core practices also need to get translated into our interpersonal lives and into our social lives. And I'll be exploring some of how that happens in the social dimension. But, um, you know, that, you know, what I have found myself in working over the years doing training programs for people, bringing uh, practice into the uh, social realm particularly, is that the core teachings make sense at all levels of our experience, in all domains of our experience, individual, interpersonal, relational, and more social and collective. But we don't always have such clear ways of bringing it into practice interpersonally and socially. We have pretty good ways of practicing individually, which we get from the tradition, but there aren't so many well-worked-out practices, methods, techniques for how we do this in the other parts of our lives. And it's been, as many of you know, that's been a strong interest of mine to do that. So, again, we could we could take a lot of time interpersonally, maybe focusing on areas like how do we work interpersonally with difficult situations, difficult speech, conflict, and so forth. But I'll I'll save that I think for another time interpersonally. So individually we can practice in a number of different ways. One of the ways I mentioned was to really focus, if we can, on the pleasant or unpleasant quality of an experience and notice the tendency to become reactive when there's something unpleasant happening. Now often that's very difficult because often we go from the arising of the unpleasant quickly and automatically to the reaction, right? Something happens, we say, oh, drat, or some more colorful language. And we go right away to the reaction in one's mind, often in one's behavior. Someone does something we don't like, we go right away to shooting the second hour verbally or sometimes through our actions, through our behavior. So we know that. So studying the pleasant or the unpleasant and just feeling it, sometimes that takes a certain amount of mindfulness. Something difficult happens, say, let me tune into the unpleasant. We can watch the tendency for the unpleasant to move towards not wanting something and then uh, reacting by pushing away, whether it's towards ourselves or towards others. Again, I could go into more detail on that. That's a very fundamental form of practice and can be done in a lot of different ways. We can try that meditatively. Something difficult happens, can I explore meditatively what this feels like, the unpleasant sense? We can also work with mindfulness to really explore what the pattern is like. And I you know, strongly encourage as a part of our practice to study our own reactive patterns at great length over and over again with great interest. How do I personally lose it? Very crucial. Very crucial practice. Not advertised so much in our literature. Come to Spirit Rock, discover how you lose it. Have great interest in your own neuroses. We don't, the the literature speaks a little bit more of the beautiful qualities. But that would be, that's that's part of it, right? That's part of it. And um, so we want to study those patterns. Sometimes we want to explicitly take on the practice of, I have a tendency to shoot the second arrow. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to watch myself. Something difficult happened to me. I'm going to watch myself and try not to blame myself, blame another. Not easy. Sometimes it can be refraining from speaking negatively in the moment and coming back and dealing with it. But this is not about uh, repression or passivity. 
the, always the aim is to respond skillfully. It's not just to, uh, you know, not just to refrain from shooting the second hour. Last time I mentioned how a lot of our more complex experiences, we may be reacting against something which actually has problematic aspects. We may be re- reacting when someone didn't keep an agreement or someone spoke to us in a way that was very uh, negative, we could say hurtful, whatever, whatever language we use, or someone did something which was unfair or unjust, either in the interpersonal context or larger social context, we want to be able to respond to, to those situations. It's not about passivity. And what's, what gets complex is that often the, uh, those many situations, our reactivity is mixed up with insight into something that actually is a problem. And that's often why we feel so encouraged to be reactive because we're right. <laughs> okay. If I'm right, then anything goes, right? If I'm right, I can sock a neo-Nazi in the face, right? That's okay, isn't it? That's what we think. Or I can, um, you know, I can say whatever I want to, you know? Um, and there's a cartoon I like from the New Yorker where it shows a tombstone and on the tombstones it says he had the right of way. <laughs> so, um, but it, it's complex, isn't it? Because we may see something very important. How do we, how do we navigate the reactivity then? And I, I suggest that's more complex and that there are ways that take some work to differentiate the insight or what's valuable from the reactivity. In other words, to see that uh, there was not a keeping of an agreement. And how can I address that without being reactive? Not so easy. And that's something we can practice in the interpersonal sphere very much. And again, here I would probably go, if I was going in more depth, to uh, ways of speaking, ways of doing inner work where there's not so much reactivity, you know, working with the reactivity in an inner way, and then also finding ways to speak which don't simply bring forth my reactivity. This is not easy, right? But somehow, interpersonally, we can know that uh, we find ways to uh, bring up the issue without reactivity. Because the reactivity will tend to put the other person immediately on the defensive will tend to a breakdown, whether temporary or longer term, of the relationship, you know. And so that's a tricky area. So that's, that's a more difficult area of practicing. Another dimension, of course, that we can bring in that I mentioned not, not in great depth last time is bringing in the heart practices. The teaching of the two arrows is more of a wisdom practice and we can also bring in heart practices that help us to um, not go out of our hearts. In reactivity, we tend to leave our kind hearts behind. If we're judgmental, a lot of times my anger leaves my heart behind. How can I still deal with the situation but not leave my heart? Again, some ways of speaking can be helpful deliberately uh, doing empathy practice or compassion practice with another. It's not easy. Not, not beginning practice, but can I do that? Can I have empathy? When I have empathy, I can still deal with the situation, but I can take the other person's perspective. Typically, when I'm reactive, I can't take the other person's perspective. Right? I can't really have compassion. So compassion practice or empathy practice Kindness can bring me to the point where I could uh, respond. It could be empathy or compassion for myself, right? Oh, I got this difficult job evaluation. Oh, it's triggering all my insecurities. Ah, help, <laughs> right? And, uh, and then can I have some compassion or empathy? You know, that's a hard one. You know, we begin with things that are less difficult. And so 
the heart practices tend to depolarize, tend to make it such that I talk to the other person as a human being, let's say, rather than simply some non-human who has done something I don't like. Because in a way, when we are reactive towards another and we don't have that person in some way in our heart, you know, we use, I think of, uh, some of you know Martin Buber's uh, text, I and Thou, which he says that we either relate to people as an it or as a thou, as a full human subject. And often when we're reactive, we relate to them as it's, simply as someone who is there in my calculation of what is good for me. And they either are performing the role or not. <laughs> you know? um, and we go there, don't we? We go to that way of, of seeing things. So that's the teaching. Those are the practices. Can you see how this is right at the core of what we do? And that we want to find ways to manifest it in all the parts of our lives. How do we do this with our own individual mind, body, heart? How do we do this interpersonally? And I thought to bring in the discussion of how we do this socially, because I think uh, in relating to, particularly to the nonviolence of Dr. King, and I'm particularly kind of inspired by this from having taught just about 10 days ago a three-day retreat with Kazuhaga on the subject of Buddhist practice and the nonviolence of Gandhi and King and from the point of view of training. So I thought that what I would do would be to show how this exact same teaching manifests in one major interpretation of social action because I think that you can see just in a very general way, how nonviolence, as particularly as taught by Gandhi and King, but also by others, could be interpreted as an expression of the teaching of the two arrows. Namely, we have received pain, our group, you know, our nation, in the case of Gandhi, with the British, we have received pain. We could be and are often reactive that reactivity might lead us to demonize the opponent, blame the opponent, and even want to use violence to deal with the problem. But that would be a way of shooting the second arrow. And so they said, can we approach the, these major social issues in a way which I, I would say echoes the teaching of the two arrows. We, will, we have received pain. We will not pass on the pain. We will not bring suffering to either actually ourselves or especially to others. And yet we will fully respond. So can you see how that could be seen as an expression of this teaching? very directly. So let me go into a little more detail and bring out a few points and then we'll have a discussion because I know a lot of you uh, who were here last time took up the uh, intention of practicing in this way and I want to hear some of your stories. (laughs) So, So I'll go through this and one of the ways that I thought I would go through this is to go through uh, one, excuse me, one way of articulating uh, the principles of nonviolence according to King. And I'll, I'll get to that just in a moment. But I think we can say, see very easily how much of our social life, and this is, this is not pleasant to look at, how much of the social life, particularly the kind that reaches the newspapers, can be seen in terms of people shooting second arrows at each other, right? Whether, you know, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, relations between nation states, people uttering nasty words from leaders of two countries, such as has happened with North Korea and the US, or whether it's tweeting at three in the morning. Most of, that, most of those tweets are primarily second arrows being shot. If you look at it, it's interesting, right? Look at it in that, with that lens. Uh, not exclusively, but I think mostly. Or whether you see the relationships between Republicans and Democrats often shooting second arrows at each other a lot. Scapegoating, very common. Scapegoating is a two-arrow, a second-arrow phenomenon. We have pain, we blame others. 
rather than actually look accurately for the causes and try to respond, right? So there, there was a poem that I remember from uh, Matthew Arnold, which talks in a way about this way that shooting second arrows is so widespread. He doesn't, he doesn't use that exact metaphor, but he, uh, this, this uh, I remembered. He says, and we are here as if on a darkling plain, swept by confused alarms of struggle and light, where ignorant armies clash by night. Ignorant armies clashing by night. That's a lot of people shooting the second arrows at each other is like that, right? And so the, uh, I think the six principles here give a sense, and you can, if you want to, you can look at your handout, but I'll, you don't need to. I partly wanted this to be something you could take home that um, gives a sense. And I'll have to go through these pretty briefly so we have time to talk together, but we can we can really uh, look at these um, uh, look at these principles, and I'll go over them briefly and spend a little more time on on a few of them. Um, the principle number one. These come from the clarification of the core principles of Dr. King for, that were developed by Bernard Lafayette, who worked with Dr. King and worked with the uh, civil rights movement coming out of Nashville. 1960, which was um, probably the most uh, extended use of nonviolence training in the civil rights movement. Uh, There's a beautiful segment in a film called A Force More Powerful, which you might be able to find on YouTube or in your public library, which is that The Force More Powerful is a six-episode account of six different times when nonviolence was used successfully. Including in, including with uh, tyrannies and authoritarian states, including the Philippines and uh, in Denmark against the Nazis. Actually, nonviolence worked against the Nazis in a number of situations. Interestingly, because that's often taken as the, you know, how would it work with the Nazis, right? And it actually did work in a number of instances that are quite surprising when you study them. So this was this was from uh, Nashville. So Bernard Lafayette. And David Jensen developed these principles. The first principle, nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. And it's a way of responding to injustice, but also you can see how it also, if we bring forth the inner practices and the interpersonal practices related to the teaching of the two arrows, this is very demanding. You know, and what I have found, for example, in my own explorations, this is the way we taught that three-day retreat, is that there's a very natural complement between Buddhist practice, where we have all those different methods of working with the two, two arrows that I, I gave, very detailed. We don't find detail in the work of King about how one works in an inner way in such detail. I think you know there were the resources of Christian prayer and the church and so forth, and the singing, of course, but there, you don't have so much detail about how you do inner work. So for me, there's a very natural um, integration that's pointed to uh, with the uh, inner work around the two arrows with the very detailed way that you work socially in the traditions of nonviolence. It's a natural uh, marriage, so to speak, and that is just beginning to be done. You can see that because it's tremendous detail. And then you'll see we have, you have quite a bit of detail here on the social way of bringing forth the uh, teaching and practices. So you can see that it takes a lot, that it's a way of life for courageous people to bring this into difficult social situations and to have this combination of inner work and outer work. Not easy. I think it's what's called for in our time, as I, as I often like to say. And this is not easy. What's called for is people who have a deep inner work and are willing to respond to our larger issues. That's what, that's what I'm encouraging. <laughs> okay. And so the second, the beloved community is the framework for the future. And this was the framework of all of Dr. King's work was that this is pointing to reconciliation with one's so-called opponents and the creation of what he called the beloved community. Same, same ideal for Gandhi. Gandhi's vision was that the British 
would leave India as friends, which I think has happened to a significant degree. And that was his vision, that one doesn't demonize the opponents, but one looks to the common interest and looks to have as one's vision reconciliation and the creation of the beloved society, which includes everyone. So it's a beautiful vision. Again, I'm not going to go into so much depth here, but we can, uh, we could do that. We could do that another time. Raising the level of relationships among people to a height where justice prevails and persons attain their full human potential. I'll go into a little more depth on the third principle. Attack forces of evil, not persons doing evil. So that's a, that's a very fundamental way that this gets translated into action. So what that means is that, and even you know, some might question the word attack as being overly militaristic. You know, we could say, you know, create justice and oppose injustice rather than the, you know, uh, how should I say this? Oppose injustice and the forces of injustice without making as permanent opponents and demonizing those who are carrying out the injustice. That's a tall order, right? That's, that is not easy at all. But it, you know, it, again, it comes in King's context, it comes from the Christian teaching that you criticize the sin and not the sinner, right? Or that you, you criticize the action, and, but not, you, you don't make the person evil or see the person as evil. Again, it's a very common teaching, you know, sometimes used as a very fundamental teaching for raising children. You know, I've sometimes told the story, which I, th- which, which I remembered, uh, of um, my mother, I think, brought us up. My mother, Bernice, who many of you met, uh, brought us up this way. And my, my, uh, she told the story of one time when she was interacting with my brother when he was five years old, and he had done something she didn't appreciate, so to speak. And she uh, talked with him and said, you know, I really love you, but I really, what you did, um, I don't like. And so she was making that distinction, right? As a way of raising a child without having some, you know, uh, deep conditioning about I'm bad. You know, that's a way of working with that. It's tricky. And he was five years old and he, he, uh, he spoke back to her and said, don't talk to me like a psychologist. Just spank me like... like Billy's parents do. <laughs> Which I don't think she did. But he was, he was saying, you know, this is, you know, that, 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 that teaching is a little too much for me at age five. Uh, and it would be much simpler in my mind if I just was, you know, got spanked for when I was bad. But she wasn't going there. So that's, that's what this teaching is. And again, it has, there, there are quite, in, quite a number of different levels to it. Um, one of the levels is that we want to understand, uh, and this is where King came to later in his life, we want to understand institutions, ideologies, and social structures as churning out pain and injustice, right? And as those structures which need to be criticized. So King, later in his life, spoke of the three poisons of poverty, racism, and militarism. And those were his targets, right? And people get caught up in the institutions, but it's those problematic institutions which were his target. That's what he was aiming at. And, and so there's some really uh, remarkable stories that I heard from Dr. King uh, and remarkable passages. He, you know, in the 1960s, he would say, he would say, um, he spoke about, uh, sometimes he spoke about the aim of the whole civil rights movement was to, uh, was to help, was to save the bodies of black folks and the souls of white folks. He used that language, right? And he said that the white man's personality is greatly distorted by segregation and his soul is greatly scarred. Imagine that, that kind of empathy or tuning in. And he often, 
would try to talk to people, particularly white working class people in the South, and find out their actual life stories. And he would often could really see very clearly how they were actually pretty bad off and they were being given uh, what, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, I forget the phrase. Do- Dr. W.E. B. Du Bois said that there was sort of the, he, he had a phrase called the wages of whiteness, you know, which was that if you buy into whiteness, you get a certain reward, but it's actually, it actually distorts your, your being, right? But it is, you know, you get your little bit higher up on the pecking order, right? In some cases, quite higher up. So um, he tried to have that sense of empathy and compassion. And so that's possible. That would be part of this third principle. Try to transform the structures, the institutions, the ways of thinking, and actually have compassion for the people caught up in them. It's not easy, right? You know, I also thought of um, uh, an interview that I saw with, um, on Democracy Now! with uh, an ex-neo-Nazi named Christian Picciolini, who, uh, who had founded an uh, organization called Life Beyond Hate for working with people who were caught up in those movements. He said that almost every, this included himself, almost everyone that he knew in those movements was in some way broken. That was his language. In some ways, they were broken people who latched on to this extreme ideology because it was in some way giving them something, maybe a sense of belonging, a sense of who's to blame, that made sense of their own brokenness. Right? Now, if you see it that way, you can see them a little differently than just seeing them as simply evil. Right, So that's, that's hard. That's where this is going towards. That's, that would be one of the social applications of this, of this principle. Um, King, I think for that reason, said that the means have to be as pure as the ends when you're acting. It's again another way of talking about this principle. The fourth principle accept suffering without retaliation for the sake of the cause to achieve a goal. And this was, again, the, one of the methods, which, again, was, you know, we could see to be, have worked in many instances, was to basically engage in civil disobedience. And in some ways, nonviolence brings out the violence of the system. And to, ta- you know, to let the violence of the system be there the idea is it tends to arouse the heart of a large number of people. You know, it tends to that, and this was Gandhi's approach as well, that uh, there, there is a quality of suffering for the sake of justice, which is redemptive and touches the heart of even one's opponents. You know, again, not necessarily right from the beginning. Gandhi said, Belief in nonviolence is based on the assumption that human nature in its essence is one and therefore unfailingly responds to the advances of love. And so there were, you know, and King talked about and other people have talked about nonviolence as actually being a way of practicing love in the public sphere. Cornell West speaks about justice as the public face of love. Right. So this, I think, is, again, these are expressions of the two arrows, ways of practicing. That, un, that sort of undeserved suffering can open the hearts. It awakens compassion. Again, not all the time, not necessarily, but that was, that was the, the strategy here. <clears throat> Principle number five, avoid internal violence of the spirit as well as external physical violence. Again, very related to the last principle, that you want, to, uh, you want to have the means be as pure as the ends in one's action. You know, and another way of saying that is that one is creating the beloved community in the very action against the unjust structures and policies. That the, that the movement itself can be an anticipation of the good society, of the beloved society. That's a vision which has been there for many 
activist in many, in many different kinds of groups, that you want the movement itself to have these qualities of connection, justice, caring, rather than being so caught up in the end that you use any means. A lot of tricky issues there. I want to recognize that all these are complex. Maybe we can get to some of them in our discussion. They're tricky issues, right? And uh, a lot of, lot of different questions. So this, again, avoiding internal violence of the spirit would mean watch that your own mind doesn't get totally caught up with anger, demonization of the opponent, blame, and so forth, that can, that can uh, and this is not easy, right? You know, you look towards uh, the issues. I mean, a lot of the, these days, I talk with a lot of people, and our, a lot of our talking is on how to modulate taking in the news these days, <laughs> so that you just don't get paralyzed, bitter, cranky, you know, and take it out on those around you by, by the unconscious shooting of the second arrow. <laughs> right? So, um, again, there can be that, that quality of empathy. And this means, again, this is where particularly the inner tools of working with anger, fear, anxiety, blaming, judgmental mind, and so forth, play such a key role. One has to have those tools. Again, this is where that marriage between Buddhist practice and a nonviolent action is so called for. And then the last principle, the universe is on the side of justice. Truth is universal, according to this passage, and human society and each human being is oriented to the just sense of the order of the universe. You know, this is the, that, that notion that King gave, I think quoting, uh, I, think, uh, I think it was a, either a Unitarian or a Quaker preacher, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. So there's some sense, and we can really have this developed by our meditation practice, that there in some way, at our depths, there is goodness, there is wisdom, there is awakening. That's why practice is so so important, because when you practice deeply, you get to know that personally. And it's almost like whatever is happening, one knows that awakening and love are possible. Right? That's why King would go into the singing, the church, the prayer, you know, that there'd be that renewal. There'd be, in terms of the old uh, spirituals, there'd be the balm of Gilead, he would often talk about. He would be able to touch that. And that gives oneself the, the inner knowledge of the direction that one's going. That's where inner practice is so crucial for long-term patience, endurance, and faith. Because you know inside, in a way, we may have traversed the journey personally that we need to traverse collectively. And you know that. As you deepen in your practice, you know that and you can touch that. And then you just have a sense, it's just a matter of time. And the time may be a while. <laughs> right? So that's, that's, that's a challenging aspect, isn't it? You know, that quality of, of faith. And so let me just finish with... Uh, 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 two short readings and a story, okay? Um, the first is from the great Tibetan teacher, Dilgo Kense Rinpoche. It's been particularly important for me. And I, um, like, uh, quite a number of times have, have dreams of him, actually. You know, it's um, over, over quite a few years. He says, unless the inner forces of negative emotions are conquered... Strife with outer enemies will never end. It's an expression of the Turao's teaching. Unless the inner forces of negative emotions are conquered, strife with outer enemies will never end. And then the story is from the uh, early period of the civil rights movement. This is the story uh, that occurred after uh, the 14-year-old boy from Chicago who was visiting, I think, in Mississippi, Emmett Till, was murdered, right? I think by, the, by a Klan group. 1955, he had, been in a, he had been in a grocery store 
and he had uh, apparently whistled at a woman there, just maybe in passing, uh, who was behind the desk. And uh, for that, he was later uh, lynched, basically, and murdered and tossed into the river. And his mother uh, brought the body back and at the funeral insisted on having his body exhibited at the funeral with an open casket which showed his head five times the normal size, right? And his mother spoke at the funeral. And I heard this story from uh, Cornell West. And uh, this, is, uh, this was at the uh, funeral of the church in Chicago after about 125,000 people had gone by the coffin. And she said this, um, I don't have a minute to hate. I'm going to pursue justice for the rest of my life. I don't have a minute to hate. I'm going to pursue justice for the rest of my life. So that's an expression of the same teaching. And then I'll just close as I did last time with the teaching of the Buddha. Think of this in terms of the teaching of the two arrows and that ending of the shooting of the second arrow, ending of the, what I'm calling reactivity as a translation of dukkha. The Buddha, I have taught one thing and one thing only, dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. I have taught one thing and one thing only, dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. Whether we, you know, whether that cessation of dukkha takes place more internally, more interpersonally, or more socially, that's the core of our practice. Very simple conceptually, challenging practically. Let's just sit for a few moments. We have time for any reflections, comments, uh, questions that uh, could be in relationship to one's practice over the last a week or or anything that was uh, said that you liked anything anything you'd like to uh, bring up one out front and then in back yeah okay you'll be next oh no let's wait for the we'll wait for the microphone and you'll be second okay so it's okay yeah you can go first just yeah um i I really like the idea that you expressed today. Um, I would say that very often we can avoid the second arrow by dodging the first. By dodging? The first arrow. Yeah. That is, very often we're reactive because our ego gets involved. Mm -hmm. And if we can not allow, let's say, a uh, an unpleasant job report uh, to get to us in the first place, we're not going to, there won't be a second arrow. And the other thing I would say, and you mentioned this earlier, is that we live in a culture where the media is constantly shooting first arrows at us to get us to react. They love it when we react. And the, uh, the forces of evil, not just the media, but also Trump and his friends, like us to react. And so I think that a way to avoid the second arrow is to dodge the first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a there's a lot there. We could probably explore what you know different way different meanings of that. You know, I I think uh, initially in terms of dodging the uh, first arrow, it means like uh, sometimes we say uh, just don't go there, <laughs> right? 
And that can be a strategy, you know. You know, a lot of times we don't have a choice. You know, if I, if I have tendencies towards self-judgment, the difficult job evaluation, I'll just, the second arrow, the first arrow is going to come. But to the extent that I have choice, I can choose uh, not to, uh, you know, not to experience the first arrow where I know it's going to lead to me shooting the second arrow. Of course, sometimes we want to deliberately, you know, out of compassion, we go to the friend who's ill. We go to the friend, even though I know it might be disturbing, right? Or we go to the friend who's having distress. So a lot of subtleties, but I think there are a lot of instances where we can just uh, not necessarily go to the first arrow. That's your point, really. A lot of situations like that. Yeah, thank you. My question pertains more to um, med- my meditations. Yeah. Um, I get to a point where I feel like I'm tipping off the edge of the earth. Just if I just let go, I will fall into, you know, the the meta, the love, the abundance, whatever. Yeah. And. Is that common? You mean that you're saying that that sense of feeling a very large love or kindness is close sometimes? Yeah. Generally, we would take that to be a good sign. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, but you want to you keep it grounded. You know, keep it, uh, you know, generally, you know, uh, keep, it, keep it embodied. You know, it's not, not too much mental. You want to keep it, keep it in the in the body, okay? So, because that sense of falling off the edge of the earth is not the usual description of kindness, right? But it, so it it may be that there's there's a need to, uh, when you get in that very open and expansive place, keep the grounding, and that will have it be a little bit more, um, less weird. Let's say, yeah. We have the microphone, please. Also, what goes along with that feeling is um, a lesson in letting go. Yeah. Yeah, often the letting go can open to that. Letting go of shooting the second arrow in a relationship can often, you know, and realizing I'm shooting the second arrow can open the heart from compassion that can open to that sense of connection and kindness. Yeah. And are there books or readings you can recommend for opening the heart meditations? Yeah. Um, I have a reading list that's on the table back there, which lists a number okay. of books related to heart practices. You and you can also go to dharmaseed.org and there, I mean, just for example, you can go to the talks related to the January Meta Retreat, M-E-T-T-A, and you can hear talks by myself, Sylvia Borstein, Larry Yang, Heather okay, And those are audios online? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, please. Just a quick one. Could you repeat the uh, title of the documentary you mentioned earlier? A Force More Powerful okay. is a wonderful documentary on six episodes of basically successful nonviolent action and often in pretty rough situations. So it's, uh, yeah, and there's a book of that name as well. It's a PBS, it was a PBS program, I think, so a lot of libraries would have it. And you can also check it out on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was thinking as you were going through this that in terms of protests and especially in the atmosphere today and thinking about uh, there's some idea or there's something uh, somebody said that Ianopoulos and Ann Coulter and Steve Bannon are going to speak at UC Berkeley. Hmm. So that's very incendiary right Mm -hmm. there. But they have a right to free speech if it's not hate speech. What if people, all the people that wanted to go, and hopefully there were thousands of them, went in silence? Silent vigil, and then if there was violence from the other side, it would be very obvious. Well, that's the classical strategy of nonviolence which is that one, you know, one doesn't bring uh, violence to those whose uh, policies and ideas one opposes. 
And yeah, I think I think uh, there are a lot of levels here. There's the level of um, um, what we, you know. I think there. Well, maybe I'll just say there are many strategic questions, like what would bring out many more people. I think if you had, you know, twenty thousand people in silence, or you know, it could be speaking as well, but twenty thousand people come out, you know, as happened in Boston a few weeks ago. I think that is a very strong statement, you know, and uh, there are a lot of strategic questions about, obviously, about some of the um, some of the uses of uh, some degree of violence by some of the opponents, right? There are a lot of lot of I think major strategic issues in terms of uh, numbers because uh, nonviolent movements have always historically really worked with numbers. When you have large numbers, a lot's possible, you know, such as toppling dictators like in the Philippines or in uh, Eastern Europe, you know, it was the numbers that made a difference. And when you have street violence, um, large numbers of people don't want to come. And so it's strategically actually quite important to have nonviolence for a variety of reasons. You know, a lot of complex questions here, but those are, those are, uh, there are st- major strate- strategic questions. Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, let them try to shoot the arrow. You dodge it. Nobody shows up. Then what do you, what does the media write about that? What do the people who are there for violence do? There's no one there to fight against. Um, I prefer the number zero. That's a strategy that could be considered. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Has anyone else who hasn't spoken yet wanted to speak? Okay, my uh, suggestion would be to make use of our time and have a strong intention to work in the ways that make sense for you with the teaching of the two arrows. Okay? How many would like to do that in the next week? This would be, um, you know, I'll tell Sylvia that this is what we spoke about, but she will go where she goes. <laughs> and, uh, and so, um, set your intention now. What, how might I like to take what was valuable here and bring it into my practice individually, relationally, and in other ways in the next week. Then we remember that I think would be clear from the exploration today that our practice is, of course, for our own benefit, but very much for the benefit of others. And ultimately, uh, we point to benefiting all beings. That's the larger horizon that is very helpful to remember. And may we offer the benefits of our time together to all beings, knowing that we are part of all beings. So thank you very much. And maybe the uh, next time I come, I'll explore these uh, practices and principles in an interpersonal context, which sometimes is more challenging than world peace. (laughs) Thank you very much. Oh, great. Yeah, thank you. Where do you live? Sarasota. Yeah, yeah, make use of Dharma Seed. Yeah, that's very helpful. And you can get the reading list back there.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed continue these offerings, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.